It's the Nahum Siegel Network. Six minutes before the hour, and uh, as we are gathered here in our New York City studios, we are watching as um, the joint session of Congress is, um, and the speech by Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to be presented. Many distinguished uh, members on the floor of the Senate just saw Senator Schumer, saw Senator Feinstein. Um, The cameras are panning to a whole variety of lawmakers from across the country and around the nation who are gathering together. It has been called the hottest ticket in Washington. Every source that has um, spoken about the demand for tickets has said something to that effect, whether it was Senator Schumer saying it was selling better than hot latkes, (laughs) Um, or whether it was uh, John Boehner who said in all his years and his decades in the Congress this was the most requested ticket he had. We know a couple of people who are there today in the audience, in the gallery, in Washington, D.C., getting ready for this historic speech. Senator Paul was just shown. There's Congressman Nadler, who's on the uh, the camera that we're watching here. I think that's Mark Rubio, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's Senator Rubio. Um, so you can imagine that with all the boycotting and with all the uh, number of uh, senators and congressmen from around the country who have um, taken a stand and have made a commitment not to be at this speech, the majority of the lawmakers in the United States have, in fact, made a commitment to be at this speech and are there today. We have uh, Miriam Al-Wallach with us. Um, after the speech, we hope to be joined by some of our expert commentators to keep it here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And my apologies that the live lunch is being preempted. I hope that uh, ZK's fans are... And the great Jewish music fans out there are understanding that we are witnessing history today. Someone today said to me that they remember today, I think that's Ron Prosur, Ambassador Prosur, with his back to us. There's Senator McCain. And uh, Lindsey Graham is over there on the right side. Lindsey Graham. Good morning, Nachum. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Pretty incredible. Someone mentioned to me today that they remember in high school being uh, in front of the television when everybody was together watching on a Sunday. Uh, They had school on Sunday, and they were watching the Camp David Accords and the Mm. ceremony then. Whether you agreed with it or not, a historic ceremony that was taking place, certainly a moment that would change history. Today might be with the message that the Prime Minister is going to deliver to the world, the free world and the world in general, this could be a uh, look back upon as a historic moment. Charlie Rangel's in that shot. There's Charlie Rangel. Didn't Charlie Rangel tweet out that he's not going? He's on, That's what I thought. He's on the list. That's correct. I know, because I tweeted out, give me your ticket. Very good uh, pickup on your part. Because well, you. I was angry and I was actually going to mention on the air... That Wrangle, of all people, who has enjoyed such an amazing relationship with both the Jewish community and Israel over the mm-hmm. years, at the, at the very least, should be there. He's in the room. Yes, he is. Unless he's planning on... Is there is the boycott planned to actually... Well, there's um, Nancy Pelosi. Is yeah, the, she's is the, the shot now. Yeah. Is the plan actually to... to walk like, out? Yeah, to demonstrate a boycott? To actually walk out of the speech before it begins? I don't know. I don't know. That'll there be might something. be Well, that'll be something. But also, notice at the bottom of this... Um, the screen that we're watching on right, the screen that we're watching on right now, you can just see the ticker at the bottom of how many people are watching this. Oh, it's uh, significant. It is in the thousands. It's it's in the millions. No, the millions I think is um, people who ever have logged into this before. Oh, really? I think. I think. It's uh, the numbers going up as we speak. Here's John Boehner. Committee on the part of the House to escort His Excellency Benjamin Netanyahu into the chamber. The gentleman from California, Mr. McCarthy. The gentleman from Louisiana, Mr. Scalise. The gentleman from Washington State, 
Ms. McMorris-Rogers. The gentleman from Oregon, Mr. Walden. The gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Messer. The gentlelady from Kansas, Ms. Jenkins. The gentlewoman from North Carolina, Ms. Fox. The gentleman from California, Mr. Royce. The gentlewoman from Florida, Ms. Ross Leighton. The gentlewoman from Texas, Ms. Granger. The gentleman from New York, Mr. Zeldin. And the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Dold. The gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Hoyer. Gentleman from New York, Mr. Crowley. Gentleman from New York, Mr. Israel. Gentleman from New York, Mr. Engel. Gentlewoman from New York, Ms. Lowy. Gentleman from New York, Mr. Nadler. Gentleman from Florida, Mr. Hastings. Gentleman from Florida, Mr. Deutsch. Gentleman from California, Mr. Sherman. Gentlewoman from California, Ms. Hahn. Gentleman from Colorado, Mr. Polis. The President of the Senate, at the direction of that body, appoints the following senators as members of the committee on the part of the Senate to escort His Excellency Benjamin Netanyahu into the House chamber. The senator from Kentucky, Mr. McConnell. The senator from Texas, Mr. Cornyn. The senator from South Dakota, Mr. Thune. The senator from Wyoming, Mr. Barrasso. The senator from Mississippi, Mr. Wicker. The senator from Tennessee, Mr. Corker. The senator from Illinois, Mr. Durbin. The senator of, uh, from New York, Mr. Schumer. The Senator from New Jersey, Mr. Menendez, and the Senator from Maryland, Mr. Cardin. The members of the Escort Committee will exit the chamber through the lobby doors. I think on the uh, House side from New York, it was Engel, Lowy, Nadler, and who was the fourth? There were four on the House side that were escorting the Prime Minister. Was it Steve Israel, maybe? No, that wasn't it. Um, who was it? Nadler, Lowy, Engel. And I'm missing one on the House side. Um, the, the, I want to say the new guy. Oh, Zeldin? Yes. Is that who was? I, that's what I thought I heard. Could be. Here we go. There are some empty seats, I see. Then we could have gotten tickets. <laughs> no, I mean, the, oh. like seats for members of the House or the Senate. Although they, those could be filled by all the escorts in a couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's how many people are going to be escorting him to the podium. 11 a.m. in the East, 8 a.m. in the West, 6 p.m. in the Holy Land. Prime Minister Netanyahu about to address a joint session of Congress. Background noise, of course, is from the House chamber. Who's counting the number of standing ovations? Oh, I could do that. Okay. I'm good at Danny, that. Danny, hashtags. I'm good at that. Hashtag standing ovation. Yeah, we should note what every standing ovation was for. Ooh, stay tough, Mr. Prime Minister. Stay tough. Bring the message of freedom. The message of unity to the world. This is unreal. The message of standing up to tyranny. Someone told me yesterday there was an article or a news item that President Obama would... Oh, he said it. The um, White House Chief of Staff, right? Or Price Secretary. Someone said that Someone said Prime Minister that President Obama would not be watching the speech today. Oh, it would spin all press over the place. Press Secretary. Yeah. Well, Ellie Wiesel's in the stands, in the gallery, and there's ah, Mrs. Um, Mrs. Netanyahu. Mrs. Netanyahu. 
I don't know who the two people are to their right. Boy, did she get a shout-out yesterday at the APAC conference from the Prime Minister? Yes. Woo! Not easy being the wife of the Prime Minister. Certainly not. That's for sure. Especially when the Israeli media is hounding you. <laughs> Especially when she likes night. to uh, recycle <laughs> bottles. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I want to know if there's anybody working in the Jewish world right now. <laughs> Good question. Nancy Pelosi. By Miriam L. Wallach. There you go. Yeah. Inquiring minds want to know. (laughs) Watch those numbers climb at the bottom of the screen. If there are um, any fans waiting for the Tuesday live lunch, we apologize. It's been preempted on the Nahum Single Network to bring you BB's speech. And then I'm told that uh, some of our greatest commentators... Those who are going to be watching the speech very closely and listening very closely will be joining us later after the conclusion. Good show today. Oh, yeah. Trying to trying to recognize all of the faces in the crowd. I'm trying to remember what day uh, John Boehner actually issued the invitation because this has been a headline. This has been in the news for weeks. And finally, we've gotten to... Yesterday, yesterday he had an amazing line where... Um, <laughs> BB to tell you, I said, I have news for you. Right. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard. I'm, I'm speaking in Congress tomorrow. <laughs> and then on top, of, on, top of that, on top of that, he says that um, that he's never heard, that so much has been said about a speech that hasn't been given. Mm. And uh, that's very true. A lot well has said. been said about a speech that hasn't been given. But now it's going to be given finally. And uh, Danny, go back. Google it. Find out what date uh, the Speaker of the House issued an invitation to the Prime Minister of Israel to come to the uh, joint session of Congress and address everybody. This might be the only moment in my life I really want to be a politician, just so I can be in the room. Really? Yeah. I still wouldn't Lindsey want to be. Lindsey Graham. Still wouldn't want to be a Mark would, Rubio. Still would not want to be a politician. We couldn't get seats. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. All right, you, I couldn't get a seat. I, I'm, <laughs> a I'm seat. still saying I wouldn't want to be a politician. Okay. I'm not joining the political fray of this country. Oh, there's what's his name. Uh, he ran for vice president. What's his name? <laughs> Oh, gosh, what's his name? I don't know, because I don't see anybody in the shot that I recognize. Who ran for vice president with Mitt Romney? This is the line from West Wing, the vice presidency, the most famous person no one ever knows. Um, Rom- you're, looking for da- you're looking to Danny now to jolt some- your memory? I-, I can't believe I don't remember. Okay, somebody's going to somebody's gonna mention something now on the app. We should have the app open so people can... Yeah, we're going to open up the uh, NSN app, everybody. You have the ability to comment on the app, right? Who, me? Yes, I do. All right, so you'll... uh, Yes, I do. You'll handle that. Prime Minister Netanyahu, we are awaiting his arrival. Joint session of Congress, Nahum Siegel Network. Exciting day because the truth is going to be told from this podium at the front of the uh, United States House of Representatives chamber. Mr. Speaker. That's why it's an exciting day. Truth is going to be told. Um... Lindsey Graham getting a lot of camera time. Yeah. Isn't that... Um, oh, he was Speaker of the House once. I can't believe I can't think of anyone's name. Um, oh, forget it. Let me look up first Romney running mate. Paul Ryan, thank you. Oh, my word. Thank you. It was Paul you and Ryan. I should both be taken out back. <laughs> I mean, how, how can I possibly forget that? Yeah. 
And then, oh, Hastert, uh, Dennis Hastert was Speaker of the House, right? I think that was him. Is he still in Congress? If You're looking to Danny, he, or are you just generally if he, if nodding he, in his direction? If he's still in Congress, it was him. If he's not still in Congress, it was not him. I have two words for Danny, Claire McCaskill. <laughs> That's all we need to know. Think he knows who she is? He certainly does. Prime Minister Netanyahu is about to speak to a joint session of Congress. You'll hear it right here at the Nachum Siegel Network during our Tuesday live lunch slot. If you'd like to engage with us, and I, I ask that um, that you do so, it's Nachum Siegel Net at Nachum Siegel Net on Twitter. Oh, they're standing up. There we go. Mr. Speaker. And on uh, the ovation now, the Prime Minister of Israel has been announced. On Facebook, Nachum Siegel Network. On Facebook, Nachum Siegel Network. Just like the page. God, I have the chills. Our Facebook update page is Nachum Siegel Network. On Twitter, at Nachum Siegel Net. You can comment on our app. Miriam Wallach is watching it as we speak. You can comment on our app. We'll keep track of the standing ovations. We'll try to take good notes on this speech. And then we'll have a discussion afterwards with uh, some of our great commentators coming up here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Who's right behind him? I can't see. Well, it looks like all those uh, members of Congress that were asked to escort him in are right. with him. I'm just wondering who is exactly who is immediately right behind him. Trying to find who's not clapping. <laughs> <laughs> Try to see who's. Those not. people are the ones protesting outside. Trying to see who's not cheering. Those would be the people who don't get it. By the way, kudos to those who are on the Capitol lawn as we speak, demonstrating on behalf of the Prime Minister of Israel and supporting and rallying Israel. For Israel, rather. Mm. Kudos to those who went down, especially from the New York, New Jersey area, our home base. Please note that the Prime Minister of Israel is wearing blue and white on the floor of... Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a public speech by the Prime Minister where it was not a gray suit and blue tie. But a, pale, a blue like that? An yeah. electric blue like that? Really? Yeah, even yesterday at APAC. It may be the same tie as yesterday, by the There's way. There's no way. It might be. There's the way no way. It, it certainly looks similar. Well, on January, thank you, Danny. On January the twentieth. Good job, Danny. On January the twentieth, Ron Dermer, the ambassador, was um, informed of the intent to issue an invitation by John Boehner, and then on the twenty-first, it became known to the White House. Oh yeah, it was before State of the Union, it's before the inauguration, right? Inauguration. Mm, what, hello, Newt. What, what did we have this year? Forgot uh, already. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm looking at the gallery. Yeah. Oh, there's Newt Gingrich. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so it was around that time. So this has been in the news now for about five, six weeks, believe it or not. And then finally today we get to hear the speech by the Prime Minister. Can you imagine we are sitting here watching I a just... Prime Minister of Israel? Unbelievable. Can you tell this to your ancestors from three generations back, or even one or two generations back, that we are sitting here watching the Prime Minister of Israel getting a standing ovation in Congress, shaking every hand, this is so moving. Receiving every smile. Look at this. <laughs> he is a rock star. Unbelievable. And look how proud she is, Saran Tanyahu. Unbelievable. It really is. Go tell this to our predecessors <laughs> in the world Jewish community. Tell those tell this to all those who've been persecuted over the centuries that the Prime Minister of Israel is being received in the United States Congress and is speaking in arguably the most important room in the world. Wow. Unreal. Marabu. And here he is. He's approaching the uh, the podium. We should note who is not at the podium. Well, Joe Biden is not there. Wow. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah, it sounds like uh, Sting just took the stage. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Assuming the ovation dies down relatively quickly, it'll be 10 minutes after the hour when the address begins. <laughs> Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and distinct honor of presenting to you the Prime Minister of Israel, His Excellency Benjamin Netanyahu. Watch the numbers climb at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> Speaker of the House, John Boehner. President uh, Pro Temp, Senator Orrin Hatch. Senate Minority. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, and House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy. I also want to acknowledge Senator uh, Democratic Leader Harry Reid. Harry, it's good to see you back on your feet. I guess it's true what they say. You can't keep a good man down. My friends, I'm uh, deeply humbled by the opportunity to speak for a third time before the most important legislative body in the world, the U.S. Congress. I want to thank you all for being here today. I know that uh, my speech has been the subject of much controversy. I deeply regret that some perceive my being here as political. That was never my intention. I want to thank you, Democrats and Republicans, for your common support for Israel, year after year, decade after decade. I know that no matter on which side of the aisle you sit, you stand with Israel. remarkable alliance between Israel and the United States has always been above politics. It must always remain above politics. Because America and Israel, we share a common destiny, the destiny of promised lands that cherish freedom and offer hope.
Israel is grateful for the support of American, of America's people and of America's presidents, from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. We appreciate all that President Obama has done for Israel. Now, some of that is widely known. Some of that is widely known, like strengthening security cooperation and intelligence sharing, opposing anti-Israel resolutions at the UN. Some of what the President has done for Israel is less well-known. I called him in uh, 2010 when we had the Carmel Forest Fire, and he immediately agreed to respond to my request for urgent aid. In 2011, we had our embassy in Cairo under siege, and again, he provided vital assistance at the crucial moment. Or his support for more missile interceptors during our operation last summer when we took on Hamas terrorists. In each of those moments, I called the President, and he was there. And some of what the President has done for Israel might never be known, because it touches on some of the most sensitive and strategic issues that arise between an American President and an Israeli Prime Minister. But I know it, and I will always be grateful to President Obama for that support. And Israel is grateful to you, the American Congress, for your support, for supporting us in so many ways, especially in generous military assistance and missile defense, including Iron Dome. Last summer, millions of Israelis were protected from thousands of Hamas rockets because this Capitol Dome helped build our Iron Dome. Thank you, America. Thank you for everything you've done for Israel. My friends, I've come here today because as Prime Minister of Israel, I feel a profound obligation to speak to you about an issue that could well threaten the survival of my country and the future of my people, Iran's quest for nuclear weapons. We're an ancient people. In uh, our nearly 4,000 years of history, many have tried repeatedly to destroy the Jewish people. Tomorrow night, on the Jewish holiday of Purim, we'll read the book of Esther. We'll read of a powerful Persian viceroy named Amman, who plotted to destroy the Jewish people some 2,500 years ago. 
But a courageous Jewish woman, Queen Esther, exposed the plot and gained for the Jewish people the right to defend themselves against their enemies. The plot was foiled. Our people were saved. Today, the Jewish people face another attempt by yet another Persian potentate to destroy us. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, <coughs> Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, spews the oldest hatred, the oldest hatred of anti-Semitism with the newest technology. He tweets that Israel must be annihilated. He tweets. You know, in Iran, there isn't exactly free Internet. But he tweets in English that Israel must be destroyed. For those who believe that Iran threatens the Jewish state, but not the Jewish people, listen to Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, Iran's chief terrorist proxy. He said... If all the Jews gather in Israel, it will save us the trouble of chasing them down around the world. But Iran's regime is not merely a Jewish problem, any more than the Nazi regime was merely a Jewish problem. The six million Jews murdered by the Nazis were but a fraction of the 60 million people killed in World War II. So too, Iran's regime poses a grave threat, not only to Israel, but also to the peace of the entire world. To understand just how dangerous Iran would be with nuclear weapons, we must fully understand the nature of the regime. The people of Iran are very talented people. They're heirs to one of the world's great civilizations. But in 1979, they were hijacked by religious zealots, religious zealots who imposed on them immediately a dark and brutal dictatorship. That year, the zealots drafted a constitution, a new one for Iran. It directed the Revolutionary Guards not only to protect Iran's borders, but also to fulfill the ideological mission of jihad. The regime's founder, Ayatollah Khomeini, exhorted his followers to export the revolution throughout the world. I'm standing here in Washington, D.C., and it, the difference is so stark. America's founding document promises life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Iran's founding document pledges death, tyranny, and the pursuit of jihad. And as states are collapsing across the Middle East, Iran is charging into the void to do just that. Iran's goons in Gaza, its lackeys in Lebanon, its revolutionary guards on the Golan Heights are clutching Israel with three tentacles of terror. Backed by Iran, Assad is slaughtering Syrians. Backed by Iran, Shiite militias are rampaging through Iraq. Backed by Iran, Houthis are seizing control of Yemen, threatening the strategic straits at the mouth of the Red Sea. Along with the Straits of Hormuz, that would give Iran a second choke point on the world's oil supply. Just last week, near Hormuz, Iran carried out a military exercise 
blowing up a mock U.S. aircraft carrier. That's just last week, while they're having nuclear talks with the United States. But unfortunately, for the last 36 years, Iran's attacks against the United States have been, have been anything but mock, and the targets have been all too real. Iran took dozens of Americans hostage in Tehran, murdered hundreds of American soldiers, Marines, in Beirut, and was responsible for killing and maiming thousands of American servicemen and women in Iraq and Afghanistan. Beyond the Middle East, Iran attacks America and its allies through its global terror network. It blew up the Jewish Community Center and the Israeli Embassy in Buenos Aires, it helped al-Qaeda bomb U.S. embassies in Africa. It even attempted to assassinate the, the Saudi ambassador right here in Washington, D.C. In the Middle East, Iran now dominates four Arab capitals, Baghdad, Damascus, Beirut, and Sanaa. And if Iran's aggression is left unchecked, more will surely follow. So at a time when uh, many hope that Iran will join the community of nations, Iran is busy gobbling up the nations. We must all stand together to stop Iran's march of conquest, subjugation, and terror. Now, two years ago, we were told to uh, give President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif a chance to bring change and moderation to Iran. Some change, some moderation. Rouhani's government hangs gays, persecutes Christians, jails journalists, and executes even more prisoners than before. Last year, the same Zarif, who charms Western diplomats, laid a wreath at the grave of Imad Murnia. Imad Murnia is the terrorist mastermind who spilled more American blood than any other terrorist besides Osama bin Laden. I'd like to see someone ask him a question about that. Iran's regime is as radical as ever. Its cries of death to America, that same America that it calls the great Satan, as loud as ever. Now, this shouldn't be surprising because the ideology of Iran's revolutionary regime is deeply rooted in militant Islam. And that's why this regime will always be an enemy of America. But don't be fooled. The battle between Iran and ISIS doesn't turn Iran into a friend of America. Iran and ISIS are competing for the crown of militant Islam. One calls itself the Islamic Republic. The other calls itself the Islamic State. Both want to impose a militant Islamic empire, first on the region and then on the entire world. They just disagree among themselves who will be the ruler of that empire. In this deadly game of thrones, there is no place for America or for Israel, no peace for Christians, Jews, 
or Muslims who don't share the Islamist medieval creed. No rights for women, no freedom for anyone. So when it comes to Iran and ISIS, the enemy of your enemy is your enemy. The difference is that ISIS is armed with butcher knives, captured weapons, and YouTube, whereas Iran could soon be armed with intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear bombs. We must always remember, I'll say it one more time, the greatest danger facing our world is the marriage of militant Islam with nuclear weapons. To defeat ISIS and let Iran get nuclear weapons would be to win the battle, but lose the war. We can't let that happen. But that, my friends, is exactly what could happen if the deal now being negotiated is accepted by Iran. That deal will not prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. It would all but guarantee that Iran gets those weapons, lots of them. Let me explain why. While the final deal has not yet been signed, certain elements of any potential deal are now a matter of public record. You don't need um, intelligence agencies and secret information to know this. You can Google it. Absent a dramatic change, we know for sure that any deal with, with Iran will include two major concessions to Iran. The first major concession would leave Iran with a vast nuclear infrastructure, providing it with a short breakout time to the bomb. Breakout time is the time it takes to amass enough weapons-grade uranium or plutonium for a nuclear bomb. According to the deal, not a single nuclear facility would be demolished. Thousands of centrifuges used to enrich uranium would be left spinning. Thousands more would be temporarily disconnected, but not destroyed. Because Iran's nuclear program would be left largely intact, Iran's breakout time would be very short, about a year by U.S. assessment, even shorter by Israel. And if, uh, if Iran's work on advanced centrifuges, faster and faster centrifuges, is not stopped, that breakout time could still be shorter, a lot shorter. True, certain restrictions would be imposed on Iran's nuclear program, and Iran's adherence to those restrictions would be supervised by international inspectors. But here's the problem. You see, inspectors document violations. They don't stop them. Inspectors knew when North Korea broke to the bomb, but that didn't stop anything. North Korea turned off the cameras, kicked out the inspectors. Within a few years, it got the bomb. Now we're warned that within five years, North Korea could have an arsenal of 100 nuclear bombs.
like North Korea, Iran too has defied international inspectors. It's done that on at least three separate occasions, 2005, 2006, 2010. Like North Korea, Iran broke the locks, shut off the cameras. Now, I know this is not going to come a shock, as a shock to any of you, but Iran not only defies inspectors, it also plays a pretty good game of hide-and-cheat with them. The UN's uh, Nuclear Watchdog Agency, the IAEA, said again yesterday that Iran still refuses to come clean about its military nuclear program. Iran was also caught, caught twice, not once, twice, operating secret nuclear facilities in Natanz and Qom, facilities that inspectors didn't even know existed. Right now, Iran could be hiding nuclear facilities that we don't know about, the U.S. and Israel. As the former head of inspections for the IAEA said in 2013, he said, if there's no undeclared installation today in Iran, it'll be the first time in 20 years that it doesn't have one. Iran has proven time and again that it cannot be trusted. And that's why the first major concession is a source of grave concern. It leaves Iran with a vast nuclear infrastructure and relies on inspectors to prevent a breakout. That, create, that concession creates a real danger that Iran could get to the bomb by violating the deal. But the second major concession creates an even greater danger that Iran could get to the bomb by keeping the deal. Because virtually all the restrictions on Iran's nuclear program will automatically expire in about a decade. Now, a decade may seem like a long time in political life, but it's the blink of an eye in the life of a nation. It's a blink of an eye in the life of our children. We all have a responsibility to consider what will happen when Iran's nuclear capabilities are virtually unrestricted and all the sanctions will have been lifted. Iran would then be free to, to build a huge nuclear capacity that could produce many, many nuclear bombs. Iran's supreme leader says that openly. He says Iran plans to have 190,000 centrifuges, not 6,000, or even the 19,000 that Iran has today, but 10 times that amount, 190,000 centrifuges enriching uranium. With this massive capacity, Iran could make the fuel for an entire nuclear arsenal, and this in a matter of weeks, once it makes that decision. My longtime friend, John Kerry, Secretary of State, confirmed last week that Iran could legitimately possess that massive centrifuge capacity when the deal expires. Now, I want you to think about that. The former sponsor, the foremost sponsor of global terrorism, could be weeks away from having enough enriched uranium for an entire arsenal of nuclear weapons, and this with full international legitimacy. And by the way, if Iran's intercontinental ballistic missile program is not part of the deal, and so far, Iran refuses to even put it on the negotiating table. Well, Iran could have the means to deliver that nuclear arsenal to the far-reached corners of the earth, including to every part of the United States. 
So you see, my friends, this deal has two major concessions. One, leaving Iran with a vast nuclear program. And two, lifting the restrictions on that program in about a decade. That's why this deal is so bad. It doesn't block Iran's path to the bomb. It paves Iran's path to the bomb. So why would anyone make this deal? Because they hope that Iran will change for the better in the coming years? Or they believe that the alternative to this deal is worse? Well, I disagree. I don't believe that Iran's radical regime will change for the better after this deal. This regime has been in power for 36 years, and its voracious appetite for aggression grows with each passing year. This deal would wet appetite, would only wet Iran's appetite for more. Would Iran be less aggressive when sanctions are removed and its economy is stronger? If Iran is gobbling up four countries right now while it's under sanctions, how many more countries will Iran devour when sanctions are lifted? Would Iran fund less terrorism when it has mountains of cash with which to fund more terrorism? Why should Iran's radical regime change for the better when it can enjoy the best of both worlds, aggression abroad, prosperity at home? This is a question that everyone asks in our region. Israel's neighbors, Iran's neighbors, know that Iran will become even more aggressive and sponsor even more terrorism when its economy is unshackled and it's been given a clear path to the bomb. And many of these neighbors say they'll respond by racing to get nuclear weapons of their own. So this deal won't change Iran for the better. It will only change the Middle East for the worse. A deal that's supposed to prevent nuclear proliferation would instead spark a nuclear arms race in the most dangerous part of the planet. This deal won't be a farewell to arms it would be a farewell to arms control. And the Middle East would soon be crisscrossed by nuclear tripwires. A region where small skirmishes can trigger big wars would turn into a nuclear tinderbox. If anyone thinks, if anyone thinks this deal kicks the can down the road, think again. When we get down that road, will face a much more dangerous Iran, a Middle East littered with nuclear bombs, and a countdown to a potential nuclear nightmare. Ladies and gentlemen, I've come here today to tell you we don't have to bet the security of the world on the hope that Iran will change for the better. We don't have to gamble with our future and with our children's future. We can insist that restrictions on Iran's nuclear program not be lifted for as long as Iran continues its aggression in the region and in the world. Before lifting those restrictions, 
the world should demand that Iran do three things. First, stop its aggression against its neighbors in the Middle East. Second, Second, stop supporting terrorism around the world. And third, stop threatening to annihilate my country, Israel, the one and only Jewish state. If the world powers are not prepared to insist that Iran change its behavior before a deal is signed, at the very least, they should insist that Iran change its behavior before a deal expires. If Iran changes its behavior, the restrictions would be lifted. If Iran doesn't change its behavior, the restrictions should not be lifted. If Iran wants to be treated like a normal country, let it act like a normal country. My friends, what about the argument that there is no alternative to this deal, that Iran's nuclear know-how cannot be erased, that its nuclear program is so advanced that the best we can do is delay the inevitable, which is essentially what the proposed deal seeks to do. Well, nuclear know-how without nuclear infrastructure doesn't get you very much. A race car driver without a car can't drive. A pilot without a plane can't fly. Without thousands of centrifuges, tons of enriched uranium, or heavy water facilities, Iran can't make nuclear weapons. <laughs> Iran's nuclear program can be rolled back well beyond the current proposal by insisting on a better deal and keeping up the pressure on a very vulnerable regime, especially given the recent collapse in the price of oil. Now, if Iran threatens to walk away from the table, and this often happens in a Persian bazaar, call their bluff. They'll be back because they need the deal a lot more than you do. And by maintaining the pressure on Iran and on those who do business with Iran, you have the power to make them need it even more. My friends, for over a year, we've been told 
that no deal is better than a bad deal. Well, this is a bad deal. It's a very bad deal. We're better off without it. Now we're being told that the only alternative to this bad deal is war. That's just not true. The alternative to this bad deal is a much better deal. better deal that doesn't leave Iran with a vast nuclear infrastructure and such a short breakout time. A better deal that keeps the restrictions on Iran's nuclear program in place until Iran's aggression ends. A better deal that won't give Iran an easy path to the bomb. A better deal that Israel and its neighbors may not like, but with which we could live, literally. And no country, no country has a greater stake, no country has a greater stake than Israel in a good deal that peacefully removes this threat. Ladies and gentlemen, history has placed us at a fateful crossroads. We must now choose between two paths. One path leads to a bad deal that will at best curtail Iran's nuclear ambitions for a while. But it will inexorably lead to a nuclear-armed Iran whose unbridled aggression will inevitably lead to war. The second path, however difficult, could lead to a much better deal that would prevent a nuclear-armed Iran, a nuclearized Middle East, and the horrific consequences of both to all of humanity. You don't have to read Robert Frost to know. You have to live life to know that the difficult path is usually the one less traveled. But it will make all the difference for the future of my country, the security of the Middle East, and the peace of the world, the peace we all desire. Friends, standing up to Iran is not easy. Standing up to dark and murderous regimes never is. With us today is Holocaust survivor and Nobel Prize winner Elie Wiesel.
Ellie, your life and work inspire us to give meaning to the words, never again. And I wish I could promise you, Ellie, that the lessons of history have been learned. I can only urge the leaders of the world not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Not to sacrifice the future for the present. Not to ignore aggression in the hopes of gaining an illusory peace. But I can guarantee you this. The days when the Jewish people remain passive in the face of genocidal enemies, those days are over. We are no longer scattered among the nations, powerless to defend ourselves. We've restored our sovereignty in our ancient home, and the soldiers who defend our home have boundless courage. For the first time in a hundred generations, we, the Jewish people, can defend ourselves. This is why, this is why, as Prime Minister of Israel, I can promise you one more thing. Even if Israel has to stand alone, Israel will stand. But I know that Israel does not stand alone. I know that America stands with Israel. I know that you stand with Israel. You stand with Israel. Because you know that the story of Israel is not only the story of the Jewish people, but of the human spirit that refuses again and again to succumb to history's horrors. Facing me, right up there in the gallery, overlooking all of us, in this august chamber is the image of Moses. Moses led our people from slavery to the gates of the promised land. And before the people of Israel entered the land of Israel, Moses gave us a message that has steeled our resolve for thousands of years.
I leave you with his message today. Be strong and resolute, neither fear nor dread them. My friends, may Israel and America always stand together, strong and resolute. May we neither fear nor dread the challenges ahead. May we face the future with confidence, strength, and hope. May God bless the state of Israel, and may God bless the United States of America. And there it is. An amazing presentation. Wow. By the Prime Minister of Israel. Incredible. Nachum, I cannot... I cannot wait to hear from the people who are calling in. I cannot wait to start discussing this. The number of notes that you and I both took. 39 minutes describing to the world what tyranny and terror is all about and how it must be stopped. Amazing. And really exposing the United States and its leadership in a respectful manner. Exposing them for the... Uh, the way they're dealing with Iran right now. He's getting a standing ovation for the umpteenth time this morning. He still has not left the podium. Uh, and again, it, it is just, it is remarkable to me as I think about it historically. It is remarkable to me that we are watching the Prime Minister of Israel be received in the... Uh, United States Congress. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're wonderful. I guess he's used Thank to the Thank you, America. Thank he's, you. He's used to the campaign. What did he say, America? Thanks to America. I guess he's used to the campaign, so he's yeah. doing all the Tadarabas. <laughs> he is. He is impressive. Shaking the hand of a John Boehner and Orrin Hatch, still having not descended from the podium. He is impressive. He is impressive. It's amazing when you think about it, how this is the leader of Israel at this time. An expert English speaker who knows everything about uh, American culture, who can relate to uh, to Americans better than any world leader, most likely. There's Senator Schumer shaking the hand of the Prime Minister. And he is the one chosen at this time to deliver this message to the world. And you think about it in the context of history, it's unbelievable. And the other point I was making where it's just, it's remarkable to think when we know how our people have suffered for all these centuries, and when you think about recent Jewish history, that now, just a few decades later, the Prime Minister of Israel is being received in the halls of Congress the way he is. Just remarkable and incredible. A lot of great quotes. A lot of very interesting things were mentioned. We are expecting both Mayor Weingarten and Michael Fragan to join us, by the way. I should also just make mention that I um, got a message from somebody that Charlie Rangel changed his mind either late last night or early this morning. Wow. The person who sent me the message t said that he couldn't explain exactly why, but... <laughs> Maybe it had something to do with the fact that if he didn't show up, the successor of his post would not, uh, yeah, whatever. Well, his successor as what, as congressman? 
Who do you have there? That may be, the, the person wrote to me, and this is... The purpose is of the joint meeting having been completed, the chair declares uh, the joint meeting of the two houses now resolved. The House will continue in recess, subject to the call of the chair. Otherwise wow. known as lunch. The person <laughs> suggested The person suggested that um, saner voices may have... Prevailed. Uh, yes, prevailed and reminding. And again, this is not confirmed. Right. Well, you want to know something? We may have someone on the line who can answer this question. We should have both Mayor Weingarten okay. and Michael Fragan with us. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good. Thank you, Malcolm. Michael, could you answer the question? We were shocked when we saw Charlie Wrangle in the room. Did he make a last-minute decision to attend? Yes, he did. He decided this morning that he was going to attend the speech. Literally this morning? Not, wow. And he, uh, he was on CNN earlier this morning and talking about it. Were there any other major um, ins or outs at the last minute, or he was the only notable one? I don't know if there were any others that were made public uh, along those lines. It's hard to know exactly. I'm sure over the next uh, couple hours, people are going to parse exactly who was there and who wasn't there. All right, Michael. Um, well, we'll ask Mayor how he did from the Israeli perspective, because he's really following what's going on in Israel, especially during election time. Let's start with you, though. How did he do in terms of the American audience? How did the Prime Minister do in your opinion? Well, there was the speech itself, and then there's the circus around the speech. And I think the speech itself was exactly what he felt he needed to say. I think he went through very meticulously the danger that Iran poses to the world, to the region. Uh, he pointed out very correctly that Israel is not alone in opposing Iran and that Iran has expansionist and militaristic ambitions. They control four capitals in the Middle East, uh, Lebanon, Yemen, uh, Damascus, uh, as, well as, uh, as well as Iraq. And, uh, you know, Iran is a, is a danger, and he wanted everybody to know that. Uh, whether it broke any really new ground and said things that, people didn't know already or that Congress didn't know already, uh, I'm not sure. I didn't really get that. As far as the circus is concerned around it, I think that the buzz around the speech actually helped Netanyahu in the end. I think the fact is that, by and large, the Democrats did not boycott it. Uh, Democrats who really matter uh, for the for the political process. Right. Bob Menendez gave an incredible speech yesterday at APAC essentially repudiating Susan Rice's speech. Right. And basically said, I, I mean, just incredible quotes that Menendez gave, uh, and basically said that uh, when it comes to defending U.S.-Israel relationship, I am not intimidated by anyone, not Israel's political enemies, and not by my political friends when I believe they're wrong. He's talking directly to the president on that. And a lot of Democrats defied the president and went to the speech, and many of them clapped. Michael Fragan with us. Um, all right, so you mentioned that there may not have been a break of new ground in terms of information that the Prime Minister gave Congress. What about the effect on the Obama-Kerry uh, um, efforts when it comes to this deal? Do you think it will have any effect on what's happening now with Washington and Tehran? Well, we don't know exactly what's going on at this very moment in Switzerland and what they're discussing. I think what... What we are led to believe right now, and this has been repeated over and over, is that we have to, and, you know, it was said by the administration, essentially said by Susan Rice yesterday, is that there is nothing on the table, there is no way to get Iran to give up its ambitions to enrich uranium. 
So essentially, they're going to leave Iran with this uh, 10 to 15-year monitoring regime, and after that, it's done. Uh, that's not acceptable, clearly, for the Israelis. That the Israelis believe is an existential threat. They're not going to go along with that. So it's essentially, well, we can negotiate a deal, but of course, Israel's not at the table, and so the most they could do is make noise on the outside, like anybody else would do. Right. Yeah, that's true. By the way, did he misspeak when he said no deal is better than a bad deal? Uh, I know. I think that that is what that's been said over and over. I think that that is what's what's been. Members of the administration say, well, we're not going to get a, a bad deal. Right. But essentially, we can't arrive at a deal with Iran under the conditions that Israel wants. Right. I thought it was and a little... And right. that seems to be their mantra, and that's been going around. That's actually been said at various speeches this week at APAC, and, right. uh, as far as that's concerned. Yeah, I found it a bit confusing the way he presented it, because I think he does believe no deal is better than a bad deal, but I think he sort of presented it as if that that's what we were being told by others. Mayor Weingarten is with us as well. Uh, Mayor, I can't get past the fact that I've mentioned this a million times already, it seems, in the last hour. I can't get past the fact that we are watching the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, a sovereign state, the Jewish state, uh, being received the way he was in Washington. We'll discuss the details of the speech in a moment, but isn't there some incredible feeling when you watch the way he's received by Congress? It is an incredible feeling. First of all, I, I think it's been mentioned numerous times that the only other world leader to ever appear before a joint session of Congress three times, and this was Netanyahu's third time, the only other world leader is Winston Churchill in the history of the United States. Wow. That, that says a lot. Um, he was received with insanely tremendous applause. It's not a surprise, but it's... But if you think about it historically, if you think about Elie Wiesel, who was up there, and, and the prime minister pointed him out, and you think that when he was a, a, a boy, he was in a concentration camp, and his life was worth less than nothing to the, to the nations that surrounded him. And today, his representative, the representative of the sovereign state of Israel, of the people of Israel, is standing before the joint session of Congress of the largest and strongest power in the world, and giving voice to our claims and giving voice to our concerns, that's an amazing thing for us to remember. Unbelievable. Mayor, how do you think this played in Israel, especially in light of the fact that two weeks from today is Election Day? Right. So it actually just ended in Israel. I was trying to get, uh, you know, I'm, I'm tuned on, on web to a few of the Israeli news sites to see what their response is, but it was on delay in Israel. There was a five-minute delay. Um, of the broadcast in Israel due to Israel's absolutely insane and archaic election laws. <laughs> do, do, you, do, you do you have an opinion about those laws? Is that a curiosity? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe someone will change them because we, we're in the age of the Internet now, <laughs> and anyone can go online and watch this speech live, but if you're watching it on Israeli television, the first five minutes they're talking around it and talking around it, and then, oh, now we're going to start. I just want to, sorry to interrupt, Mayor, I just want to let everyone know that right now trending on Twitter is both BB's speech and Netanyahu's speech. Top two things right now trending on Twitter. Wow, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, Twitter was absolutely blowing up with Netanyahu's speech. You know, I've said Nacho many times, and I I think we can understand that if you want something to be popular, you've got got to get somebody to say it's us. Right, that's Mm. true. That's true. And and on some level, this speech would have gone... Almost unnoticed. Right. I don't think it would have been carried live on CNN, 
and it wouldn't be trending in Twitter right. if not for the fact that it became a huge fight, a political fight. Now, I don't say there, there might be ramifications of this political fight. fight. I don't know if there will be. I'm not sure there will be. But as far as getting the message to as wide an audience as possible in the United States, having this fight really helped that cause. Oh, no question about it. Michael, what about the ramifications? Do you think that the Obama-Netanyahu relationship will now be worse if he does, meaning if the prime minister does win re-election? I think the relationship has already been bad. It's been bad for five years. It's going to continue to be bad. There's no question that they don't like each other. They don't trust each other. And I think they just approach this issue. They approach the entire Middle East from polar opposites. Uh, if you're Netanyahu, you're looking at Obama, and you're looking at an administration that has had failed policies in Iraq, has failed policies in Afghanistan, has failed policies in Syria, failed policies in Yemen, failed policies in Libya. And you're thinking, okay, I should trust this administration. Why exactly? Right. And I hate, I hate to, I, I, I'm just, there isn't a light, there isn't something to latch onto from the perspective of Israel. And the truth is, I think the other American allies, Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Egypt, are more on the page of Israel than they are on the page of the U.S. when it comes to this. Mayor, isn't it a big thing in Israel that uh, the opponents of the prime minister always point out? Can't we have a leader that gets along with the president <laughs> of the United States? Uh, well, you asked if the, if the relationships can get the relationship between Netanyahu and Obama could get worse. The relationship now is worse, and it could get worse, sir. <laughs> I don't know how much, <laughs> but uh, and yes, Miriam, I know that's not correct English. Um, <laughs> that's okay. The funny what, some of the, there were many many funny comments going on on Twitter as I was keeping an eye on uh, the different tweets going out and the number of puns and um, uh, and hide and sheet. Uh, there, there, I don't know. People were furious. English teachers abound oh, about the number of puns that were included in Netanyahu's speech. I, of course, was impressed and excited with the Robert Frost reference, but that's oh, the way you get you to go. me. Oh, Michael, don't you think this Capitol Dome helped build our Iron yes. Dome was the best Great one? Line. Great line. That was an excellent line, and there's no question that there was a lot of red meat in that speech for the members of Congress. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, right. There was a lot that they could be appreciative of. That's true. I wrote down a few of the lines that I thought were, I posted them on the, the, the Israel Show's Facebook page. This deal does not block Iran's, Iran's path to the bomb. It paves Iran's path to the bomb. Right, I think I also, that mm. sums it up well. Right. Um, in the case of ISIS, the enemy of your enemy is your enemy. I know. I love that one. Yes. <laughs> you should know um, that Mia Love, the congresswoman-elect in Utah's fourth wrote, I often wondered what it would have been like to listen to a Churchill address. I think this is as close as I will ever get. Nice! Wow. Yeah. Hey, Mayor, tell us about Chizku Imtu. Did he use the right Pasuk for today? Well, yes, the Pasuk is in Devarim Perak Lamed Aleph. I knew you'd know that. <laughs> no, I didn't know it. My computer knows it. <laughs> and the full Pasuk is, Al-Tiruva Al-Ta'artumi Pnehem, do not be afraid of them, of our enemies, as you enter the land. Ki Hashem Elokecha the Lord your God, he goes before you. He will never let go of you. This is Moses's, as the, um, yes. as the Prime Minister said, Moses' message to the Jewish people as they're about to enter the land of Israel. Right. And, uh, Michael, does it take any courage to quote Moses in the halls of Congress? Or this is fine and there won't be any backlash. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, we have a proud tradition of religion and diffusing religion. In uh, United States politics, it's it's totally acceptable, as opposed to you know perhaps some other countries that would be uh, 
And that, that's a good thing. And, and you have to remember, uh, if you look at the polling in America, religious people, I'm not saying Jews, or, yeah, it goes across the board, religious people are those who attend services more than once a week are more likely to be supportive of Israel right. than those who don't. That's true. You know what I would add to that, Michael? So help me God. Hmm. That's right. Yeah. Part of our part of our lexicon, right? Uh, absolutely, and there's no question about that. But I just want to I just want to get back to one thing before. Sure. I am not advocating that it is a good for Netanyahu and Obama to not have a good relationship. Right. That's not a positive thing. That's not a good thing. That's not the truth is. I don't think that that is the way that uh, that the Israeli Prime Minister should approach uh, U.S. politics uh, and Israel's greatest friend. The United States remains greatest, Israel's greatest friend, not to marginalize the presidency and embrace Congress. It's not good politics. However, it's just it seems to be the reality that the that those two personalities don't seem to be able to get along and to find a common ground. Understood. Yeah, uh, and and by the way, that's why I think Michael he he spent the first five minutes of the speech thanking Obama and thanking America and for the, that, the, the line about the Iron Dome and the Capitol Dome. I mean, literally, the first five minutes of the speech. I thought that, that his mentions of President Obama and giving credit where credit was due was incredibly classy, especially in terms of the climate that had that surrounded this speech and the, the blatant statements, the open statements that President Obama would not be watching, um, etc. You know, to start out that way when you are on the outs, so to speak, equally on the outs with uh, the President of the United States, I thought was very menschy. Look, Joe Biden, and Joe Biden, who prides himself on being one of the strongest stalwart friends of the Jewish state, was in Guatemala today. Wow. Okay, instead of being at the speech. There's no greater, uh, you know, picture says a thousand words, with having Orrin Hatch from Utah, a great friend of Israel, sitting behind him instead of Joe Biden, who for years and years and years is, is has been one of Israel's strongest friends, yet he absented himself. Now, I don't know if he was ordered to or it was a decision he made on his own, but that's a powerful statement. Oh, no question about that. Um, they, need to, they need the deal a lot more than you do. Is that true, Michael, in order for them to remain part of the international community and to get what they need and for their economy to stay the way they'd like it to be or, or improve? Iran must have some type of deal on the table with Western powers? Well, I think the conventional wisdom right now with regard to the precipitous decline in oil prices has been that Iran's economy is suffering under a sanctions regime, even though they've been able to evade a lot of the sanctions. But the oil revenues just don't, <clears throat> just don't exist in the way they used to. And that has caused them, uh, a lot of pain, which is probably why they're willing to come to the table, uh, to the degree that they are. On the other hand, they have made a, uh, they have made an incredible, uh, game out of these negotiations over the last couple of years and really have done everything they can to negotiate on one hand and to cheat on the other hand. Yeah. Malcolm, I, I want to go back to something you said before, if you don't mind, uh, about the uh, alternative to a bad deal is no deal and so forth. Right. So that that is true. The alternative to a bad deal is no deal. But the, the Obama talking points over the last few days, there have been two talking points. One was the alternative to this deal is war right. and American troops on the ground, which was used to scare um, Americans and, and the Congress. And the other is, the other talking point that they constantly repeated was, 
well, you know, Israel didn't come up with any new alternative deal. What are they complaining about? Not as if they were in on the negotiations. And that's why he had a section in the speech, the alternative to a bad deal, this is a quote, is a much better deal. Right. Mm. And then he went through the different things that would be in a much better deal, the sanctions and so forth, that, um, that could force them into a better deal. Right. At the end of the day, the, Obama, the, the difference is simple. The Obama administration wants now to allow Iran to have a nuclear uh, weapon and contain it. Israel doesn't want to allow them to have it. Right. What would not have been a home run for this speech? I mean, undeniably. Well, by the way, by the way, yeah. I, I can make the argument that it was not a home run because there was a lot of, um, how do I put it, a lot of minutia in the middle of the speech that I bet had a lot of uh, high schoolers around the country falling asleep. You know what I mean? It's not, I don't know. You know, I was waiting. I tw- and I put this okay, on. Okay, but they're not the target audience. I put. I understand that. Okay, but I but some of us are high schoolers. Uh, <laughs> you just say the word centrifuges. Exactly. And exactly. And by the way, that's all you got to do. And to by put the, way, the country to sleep. And by the way, I think I caught a congressman sleeping through the centrifuge part. I just want you to know. Oh, there were but, a couple of comments. Yeah. of, I think so and so's asleep. Exactly. Yeah. But but besides that. I mean, so that that's one thing in terms of um, uh, not hitting a home run. Uh, and, of course, I've just lost my train of thought. But <laughs> Right. But So then let's go back to the question. Yeah. What would not – okay, so besides Nahum, I think many people think it was a home run. <laughs> no, it was a home run. Okay, so then what would not have but made I, it a home run? But, but, was it a home and, and run this, before it started? And this is what I was going to say, and I and I wrote this on Facebook. As and I, I prepared it on Facebook, and the second I heard the turning point, which was Ellie Wiesel, you pressed I, I pressed the button. And that was – I was waiting for the – the, for the usual ending by Netanyahu to be inspiring and to say something to the free world that would, you know, give us hope and would, and sure enough, of course, he ended up doing it, not in a very long portion, but he ended up doing it. And that, and that to me is, you know, much more exciting than hearing about centrifuges. So that was my point. Gentlemen, you wanted to add anything? Michael? Well, I, I'll go out there on a limb. I, I actually don't think the speech was a home run. Right. I, I don't think that. Look, I, I don't think this entire episode has been a home run. I think that this has been, unfortunately, if you're looking and you're politically active and you're looking at the situation, you are chagrined by the degree of distrust that exists between, right now, the upper levels, the upper echelon of, of Israel, the administration. I'm not going to say who's to blame. I think it's clear that, you know, I have my, my opinions about who's to blame, but this speech doesn't didn't really go anywhere. If you're if you're the administration, if you're John Kerry, if you're uh, the president of the United States, this speech really doesn't convince you. It just says, "Well, I know all that history. I know that there. I know Iran's a really bad actor, but we're going to try and contain them, and containment is is going to be better." Right. Um, you know, it, it just you know it doesn't really. And I'm not sure how high you could possibly set the bar, but this really just plays into the fact that uh, you guys don't understand the neighborhood we live in. The administration does. Congress, you know, seems to. The administration doesn't understand. So let me come here and teach you. Mm. It just, to me, it doesn't. It didn't do it in a sense that he didn't present anything new that nobody, that anybody didn't know already. Right. Uh, I'll tell you what. what, The reason that we're so inclined to say it's a home run is because of the reaction. You know, you you see, you see the the representatives of the entire United States get up 30 times at the standing (laughs) ovation. That's that's almost Pavlovian in this, uh, in this arena for, for Netanyahu. What I found missing, and and as the speech was coming to an end, I, I felt like, wow, I can't believe I didn't hear that. 
I thought that Netanyahu would get up and say, we know the following, we, the state of Israel, have the following information that you guys don't know. And here it is. They are exactly. going so away from the bomb. This is, this is the, the agreement that America is, is going to uh, sign. He said, look it up in Google. It's not, you don't need an intelligence agency. So I didn't need him to tell me to look it up hmm. in Google. So you needed a smoking gun. tell me, at least to some extent, why Israel is so fearful of the deal, and to make it very clear and put it in the terms of, you haven't heard this until now, because as Michael said, we heard all this already. Right. Interesting. How's it going to play in Israel, Mayor? A bump in the polls or not? That's a good question. Here's what's happening in Israel. Those who are against Netanyahu continue to be against Netanyahu. They concede one thing to Netanyahu always. Every anti-Netanyahu uh, analysis of the speech will begin with, well, he's a great speaker, we know that, he does it well, he's amazing what he does, but... And then they'll open up the whole thing. Was it worth um, defying the president? Was it worth uh, creating a rift between America and Israel? And those who love Netanyahu and want to support him will, will start their analysis by saying... Yeah, of course he's a great speaker, but look what he's done that was above and beyond what we expected. Right. Will it give him a bump? I think it will give him a little bit of a bump, and I think that part of what is at play here from Netanyahu's perspective is the elections in Israel, because if he's not reelected, he can't fight this fight anymore. And I think one of the biggest indicators that this is a, a, where he's looking is the time that the speech was given. In America, it was 11 a.m., most people are not tuned in. In Israel, it was 6 p.m., right. prime time news in Israel. Unbelievable. And now they're sitting for the next few hours analyzing it and discussing That's right. it. And that was the intended timing, I believe, of this. Well, of course, we have to take into account that this is the debate that Bibi wants to have in Israel. He wants to focus everything on Iran. He doesn't want to focus on housing. He doesn't want to focus on you know, the economy doesn't want to focus on the high cost of living in Israel, all those things that he's potentially vulnerable on. He wants to focus on security issues. Good and point. as long as the debate is about security issues, he does better. And uh, so to the extent, so the extent it's neck and neck, this can only, you know, to, the, to the extent that the cynicism doesn't override it, and the natural cynicism of, of Israelis doesn't override it, this, this has uh, political benefits. He puts, right. he puts his best issue on the front burner. Right, but there's a flip side to that, Michael. The, I'll tell you what, the flip side is his enemies say, hey, look, the guy now is desperate. All these years that he's been dealing with this, and he did bring it to the forefront. Everybody agrees and everybody will give him that. He's brought this subject to national, international attention. But at the end of the day, look what's happening. He's dropping the ball. He has to run to the Congress to fire the president in order to make his case because the United States isn't making the deal that he wants. And at the end of the day... Netanyahu is failing at, at his prime issue. Uh, I agree with that. I think there's something to be said for his failure to have a effective partnership with this administration. And I can, you know, you, whoever you want to blame, it's, it, it, but that's the reality, that there's a, there is no partnership on this issue between Israel and the U.S. They seem to fundamentally differ on Iran. There you have it. We've yeah. had nine comments, by the way, on the app. All right, so we'll get to those in yep. a second. Uh, Mayor Weingarten, you, Michael. You have another minute, or you? Yeah, gonna... Mayor, take it away. You get the last word. <laughs> oh, now, 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 I lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, 
Okay, I'm sorry. I just lost the train of thought. It'll come back to me, but it'll be too late. Well, you... well I could, I'll take the last word then. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> just to frame it, uh, you know, I, I, I describe Bob Menendez as the big winner of, of the week, and I really think that he, he really stole the show uh, vis-a-vis the entire bipartisan ship issue around Israel. I think that he, he, he did it appropriately. The other big winner, uh, just to put this into uh, political perspective, is Lindsey Graham. Right. Graham yes. is having a right now as we speak in the Capitol Hill Club adjacent to the Capitol is having a A plus list fundraiser kicking off his potential ex- presidential exploratory committee and he is uh, he attracted some very 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 uh, significant donors to this whether or not they're going to be supporting him for president or not but they're still going and a lot of Republicans are using this speech and using this issue. Uh, around the circus, around the speech, to uh, promote their foreign policy uh, bona fides. So, uh, so stay tuned to see how that this will have lasting effect as we go on in the political process. Phenomenal, Mayor. Anything else? Yeah. Yes, it came back to me. The train come back came back to the station. Um, I think this speech, and and as Michael says, the Republicans can use this, but also in Israel they'll they'll see this. It it highlights the difference, the insane polar difference between Netanyahu and Obama. You have a president of the United States who won't use the word radical Islam. You have a president of the United States who doesn't want to antagonize the Arab world, who doesn't want to go to war against radical Islam, and who's trying to negotiate with Iran. And I think Americans find it crazy at this point. I mean, it's obvious that this is what where the White House is. You have an Israeli leader who gets up and looks you in the eye and he says, this is evil. Right. Radical Islam is evil. We need to stop it, and if we don't, we are all in trouble. And I think that if people think about that, that disparity between these two messages and these two leaders, it will help us a lot. Phenomenal. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Mayor Weingarten, Michael Fragan, aftermath of BB's address to the joint session of Congress. Brilliant analysis. And um, that's right, Miriam Wallach. No home run today. No home run. I See, it's, I don't know if it's no home run. The audience, the, or, the fans, okay. tra- treated it like it was a grand slam. Right. But... Um, so this is a little bit this is a on. little bit inside baseball. But come on. It's a little bit inside baseball. I'm sorry. But come on, the drifting into the centrifuges, come on. I know. The centrifuge threw you off. At I, that point you were like I was one basic. sheep, two <laughs> sheep. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, shout out to all the schools who watched. Yes. People were tweeting in. I, I got to give credit where credit is due. I know that TABC, by the way, TABC Israel Advocacy, I'm not sure if they're just tweeting along with us or they're listening in, but shout out to them. They've been retweeting a lot of our tweets. I At, can only imagine who's in charge of that Twitter account. In, in minute number, <laughs> let's see, it was a 39-minute speech, so about minute number 25, yeah. I started saying to myself, why I feel bad for the kids that have to sit through this now. <laughs> you know, they were sort of, they were sort of uh, had their eyes glazed over. Yeah, but I'm sure they had their phones. I hope so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and shout out to SKA, Hafter, um, who was it? Mag, Mag and David. David. Mag and David, they also watched. If your school watched, if you, if your school showed the speech, please let us know. You can, you can email me, Miriam at NahumSiegel.com, Nahum at NahumSiegel.com. We'd love to talk about it. Yeah, no question about it. And also, some of the comments that we had, um, Shaney Batsheva wrote on the app, BB instilled more American patriotism in one speech than Obama has in six years. Ooh. 
That's a tough one. Uh, Lieber, I don't know who that is, but Lieber wrote, was Erev Purim planning coincidence? Wow. I think that's happened before. Didn't he once address Congress this week? I think Danny. so. Danny. <laughs> I think he once did that before, one of the prior speeches, or maybe it was one of the UN speeches, but... I think he has referenced Purim before, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Solomon Simon wrote, thank you for providing me, providing me a means to hear this speech. And Yehudis. Thank you, Simon. And God bless Yehudis. She, she, uh, chimed in a couple of times. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Yehudis. Uh, the funniest one was when she wrote, especially thankful for the NSN app, hearing the PM speech, though, one second, hearing the PM speech, though it hasn't started on C-SPAN yet. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're way in advance. And people are just proud of BB. People are proud of BB. By the way, I know that you know you make fun of my um, obsession with social media and with Twitter, but um, BB's speech and Netanyahu's speech still both the top two trending um, stories on on Twitter, Man. only to be followed by you know things like Pancake Day and um, IHOP waitresses because today is National Pancake Day. Couldn't do, beat that out. Do you Couldn't know, beat that out. Do you know how many people? have to be interested in the speech for it to be trending on Twitter? There have been over 11 million tweets with the hashtag BB speech, which is B-I-B-I. There's also been BB speech with two Bs. <laughs> okay, but Netanyahu's speech has had 150 million tweets. Wow. 140 that, million of them were mine. Is that is that possible? <laughs> it's, on, it's just on Twitter, Danny. Yeah. It can't be. It's impossible. You can't have 150 million tweets. 150. Oh, I'm sorry. How many tweets are there in a day? In a typical day of every. In my typical day? (laughs) No, I'm serious. Oh, sorry. Um, and by the way, everyone's, I mean, God bless, everyone's chiming in. Everyone's chiming in. It's, it is fantastic that his speech was replete with sound bites. Oh, yeah. It makes, makes fun for me and you. No question about that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I love the Iron Dome, Capital Dome. We, we don't even mention the um, the uh, Game of Thrones reference. So there are, yeah, that's right. There are about 250 million tweets a day. So it can't be that there were 150 million during the speech. Well, well, maybe there were. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. Um, but it's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. Yeah. So Game of Thrones got a shout out. John Kerry, his good friend, got a thank shout out. Thank God he didn't do any Derek Jeter references. Thank and God. thank God he had no signs. I just want to make mention of the fact that I'm happy he had no props. The Prime Minister of Israel... Not enough words on each slice of paper, though. People commented that there was a lot of paper shuffling. He he needs more words for paper. A lot of people shuffling. I'm already at the the age where I can appreciate that you want as few words as possible on the page. Why was there no teleprompter? No, I don't know if they ever do that. What do you mean? Guests get a teleprompter in Congress? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. For the last time I was in Congress for a speech, I mean, I can't tell you. I don't remember... But I don't think it would be unusual to have the Prime Minister of Israel have a teleprompter during a speech. I don't know. I don't know. Um, All right, but let's go back. Yes, and you and I have spoken about this before, that I do not believe that the Prime Minister of Israel needs to have any props any time he gives a public address. That, I think, belittles his message and belittles his position and the office. That was good. Yes, I was very happy to see that. The Game of Thrones reference. Game of Thrones. Yeah, but it was only the words Game of Thrones. That was it. Well, there wasn't a reference to anything in the game. Well, throws. that again was a double entendre. Because of the throw. The, the, right, you don't right. you don't hear him mentioning House of Cards season three. <laughs> I would have liked to hear that personally. For me, that's the reason it wasn't a home run. <laughs> if we're going to mention anybody, it's going to be Frank Underwood. And the thing that most reminded you of the West Wing. Oh, one second. Today, what most reminded you of West Wing in today's speech? Hmm. 
I don't know that I felt any Sorkinisms during this speech. I do want to know who wrote the speech. I want to know who. They say he wrote most of it. Really? Which I do believe, yeah. Hey, it's a long plane ride from Israel. I believe that. You don't think he's up the whole time, do you? I don't know if he's up or not. All you I think know. he's sing- sitting in LL business? I don't think he's sitting in LL no, he's business. in coach. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's sitting in row 66 next to me. I am almost sure. Yes. That prime ministers do not fly in first class. I think only business. And I think they're the only members of government to fly in business. Does his seat t- completely recline? No. No. <coughs> yeah, right? I don't think so. You want some water? No, I'm saying I don't think his seat totally reclines. Oh. Um, Maya Note, listen, thank you, Barry Daddlekramer. Shout out to Maya Note. They thank also. Thank you, Maya Note. Thank you, Maya Note. Excellent. Really cool. Really cool. Any schools outside of New York, folks? Um, Danny just let me know that at Netanyahu's speech is still getting three tweets a second. Wow. And I haven't tweeted in the last five minutes. So it's not me. Wow. I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's nice. Sorry to put it this way, but it's nice that we, uh, that something Israel related is tweeting and it has nothing to do with a war. Yeah, well, you know, world's coming to an end, but at least we're getting a lot of tweets about it. Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> the world's according to Nahum. I, um. It's going to be a pretty interesting, uh, um, weekly uh, schmooze with uh, Malcolm Homeline this week, I imagine. On Shushan Purim, you mean? Yes. I'll be too drunk to conduct it. Well, there we go. And then we just lost half the audience. So um, at some point today, mm-hmm. I don't know when it was. I think I was walking to the radio station this morning, and I was thinking of this whole I, – I get into these moods where I start thinking in the context of history. Okay. When I want to, when I want to avoid what's going on during the day, I start thinking of history. <laughs> And I was thinking about the the whole topic of, you know, these great prophecies coming true and, and the direction of our people and everything. And this whole concept of walk, you know, walk, my grandfather, who I never knew, my grandfather died in his 40s before my mother got married. So he, they remember, my family from Cologne, Germany, remembers the day. When he was confronted by a Nazi officer, obviously, you know, before the war, but uh, still at a very tense time, as you can imagine. I would love to walk over to my grandfather and let him know hmm. that now a, a man like him would find it impossible to believe that now there is a state of Israel with a full army and air force. He has a great grandson in the Israeli Navy. He has great-granddaughters in the Israeli army, including officers. And and there is a sovereign, independent state of Israel whose prime minister arrives in Washington, D.C., a city that was not very receptive to his plight back in Germany. The prime minister of Israel arrives in Washington, D.C., and gets a standing ovation multiple times from the members of the United States Congress, and is such a hit that the vice president doesn't show up to the speech. Like, he's so powerful, he's so... And the way he's looked at and looked upon, that it causes the vice president of the United States not to be at the speech. It's just, it's impossible. The whole story is about how can one not be of faith when they, and believe in God when they see... This whole thing. And don't you think it's equally as incredible that your youngest and my youngest, or even not even my youngest, will reflect on this and say so? No, of course. 
Love that. I mean, I can't, that. I don't even know what it's like to live without a state of Israel, which is something that the prior generation always, you know. Right. Oh, if only you did. I can't even <laughs> I can't even talk about a time because I was so young of pre reunification of the uh, city of Jerusalem. I can't even speak of that time. I mean, go tell a kid today that there was a time when you couldn't, you know, have the run of Jerusalem and do whatever you wanted in the entire country practically. The whole thing is unbelievable when you think about it in the context of history. So that's that's my message. I, I keep it's thinking about Misha it. It's a Misha week. Oh, this is a big nice week. It certainly is. It's of an Ahapohu week. It is a, uh, it's a La Yehudim Haisa Oro week. Amen. There's so much going on in our history, and this is quite a week to uh, to remember it. Um, anyway, I uh, hope you've enjoyed our uh, little... Uh, our little uh, soiree into um, world events with the Prime Minister's speech before Congress. I apologize to ZK and all of his fans for preempting the Tuesday live lunch. Jesse Zweig will have a live lunch tomorrow starting at 11 a.m. Eastern time. <laughs> Yehudis also commented on the app that she picked up the Game of Thrones reference as well. Well, he said it directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So, Daf Yomi Yid um, commented, great, couldn't get it on CNN.com, stopped reading x-rays for a little to listen. All right. All right, thanks. Now you do, now we, you, are, we are responsible we're, for the stop work order here We're trending. We're trending. Um, and Mayor Weingarten chimed in that uh, Erev Perm was not part of the plan. It was a The date was set to coincide with the APAC conference. Right, because he was here anyway, I guess. Yeah, somebody but actually still. also, one second, somebody also commented that he would have wished that um, that BB would have mentioned God, Hashem directly. Hmm. I wish that the PM would have mentioned acknowledgement to Hashem for past and future. Interesting. All right, I hear that. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Moses' biblical message to the Jewish people walking into Israel, you know. That may have been good enough. It was pretty, that was pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty that was good. pretty good. I got to tell you, yeah, he had the, he had my attention longer than a lot of drushes I've heard in shul. I still liked it to Darabah at the end. Yeah, and that by the way was probably the most natural part. of the Yes, yeah. because he just he lost it. Yeah. He, he forgot where he was. He for was a minute. person. He was just a guy. Unbelievable. It was just a guy. There's also something about he about hearing Hebrew spoken. Oh, the uh, the pasuk was yes. incredible for that just reason. Just hearing it. Even the way he pronounces Hezbollah. Oh, Hezbollah. <laughs> Hezbollah. It's like a totally different, even though the way he pronounces, you know. And I, you know that there are, you know that there are like a hundred people in that room going, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get it themselves. And, <laughs> and just the fact that he, you know, and Hamas and, oh, the you know, whole thing. and he says it, and even, even the way he says Iranian and, uh, and Tehran, like, I don't know. It just rolls off the tongue from that area of the world. And then, Incredible. and then think about it. You know, he, as a youngster, and I, I shouldn't say that because I think it was his older brother, as a youngster, Yoni Netanyahu was devastated that he has to spend part of his teenage years in America when his family moved from Israel to America. He was devastated. If you read, oh, if you read his book, he was, he was furious. You haven't bought me his book. He was furious. And, uh, the letters to, the, Yoni's letters or letters from right. Yoni. Um, he was furious to the point where when he's in high school in Pennsylvania, he writes back to his friends in Israel. All they talk about here are cars and girls. <laughs> you know, no, nobody's talking about destiny and nationhood and you know, and, and, and army. Obviously, you know, 
Although in that era, I guess American kids were still going to the army, but nobody was, it was, it wasn't dominating high school life. There was a picture today, a side by side of BB in his early twenties right. and Obama in his early twenties, nice President life. Obama in his early twenties, President Obama sitting there in some kind of a college pose <laughs> with a cigarette in his mouth and BB with a, Uniform. Right, uniform and a gun over his shoulder. And likely a cigarette as well. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, so um, so then what happens? Fate brings them to the U.S. He, through uh, college and MIT, you know, becomes this, you know really proficient in the English language. And then on top of that, if you're going to learn the culture of a country, be there in your late teens and early twenties. And you know that's where, and he learns. He could speak to an American audience, right. you know. Right. Jeter was the only thing he really didn't yeah. get because, you know, he was out of swing and a miss. He was out of the country too long. <laughs> but everything else he gets and he understands the way Americans think. And this is the man that has served. Is Ben Grion the only prime minister to serve more years than him? And that was in two stints. Danny. I wonder. <laughs> Look that up. I think now with nine years, he may be the second longest tenured prime minister. I think Ben Gurion was longer than nine years if you put both terms together. Check it out, Mr. Goldberg. What do you got there? I don't know. That's more that's more history than I so would. So imagine that he is the person, this English speaking, knowing American culture MIT grad. MIT grad who who knows Kerry from that era, who who um who who comes from a a if there is such a thing as a Camelot or royal family right. in Israel, right? The Netanyahu's. You know this is the guy. Who now is now again? You know, I like BB the whole thing, so everyone thinks I'm waxing poetic for that reason. There's just something to it Agreed. that this is the person that is now getting up in front of Congress and making this address, and that God had prepared him for this role. Don't you also feel so long ago? Sorry, don't you also right. feel like there's like a ju- juxtaposition of the heroes to heroes trip going on right now with all of these U.S. vets who just feel at home in Israel, who get. Israeli culture who get what it means to defend yourself and to, and to put your life on the line and to feel like they belong once they get to Israel. And part of their rehabilitation is meeting with former Chayalim who share their story, who have the same narrative, who go through the same trauma. I don't know. There's just some – there's that – and they have this unbelievable respect for Bibi because he served and he lost a brother and he has this – What, you mean Israeli soldiers? Yes. Or American soldiers? I'm talking about the – I'm just – Something about the fact that this trip is going on right now. Right. I don't know. I don't know how many Adds people are me. aware of it, but Heroes to Heroes takes the American veterans and uh, who are having diff- great difficulties and are suffering from a PTSD. And other, other and other, things. And a lot of other things. Right. They bring them to Israel and they find in Israel that they, that they are among people who get them, who right. understand them, and nothing against the Americans. We just don't, we don't have the same, you know, uh, military culture they have in Israel. And they feel very much at home there, uh, which is pretty amazing. And they're not judged. That's right. part of it for them, is that they're not judged. Is that every chayal in Israel knows what it means, what, what these U.S. vets are going through. And they, I mean, we met a number of them. Yeah. It was really, it was a remarkable breakfast, a remarkable opportunity that morning. Yeah, so they have a, uh, they have a trip that for them is a once in a lifetime experience. And the Israeli military goes ahead and, uh, and treats them like family. Second longest stint. What is Ben Grion is how many years? If you put both terms together, I would. I, six plus four. Does that make sense? No, it's forty-eight to fifty-four. Right. And sixty-three to sixty-nine. No, and fifty-five to sixty-three. Oh, wow! It's longer than I thought. It's like fourteen years. 
So Ben Gurion will be the longest tenured um, prime minister, and Bibi is now second. He has served the second longest in the position of prime minister. How many terms? Two or three? Not terms, meaning how many stints did he have? Uh, he had one. He started in '96, and then he was interrupted, right? Yeah, '96 to '99. And then till today, right? He was not prime minister for ten years. Wow. From 99 to 09, Bibi was not prime minister. That's interesting. Dark years. Yeah, I would not have, uh, I wouldn't have thought of that. Anyway, there you have it. Thank you for listening in, everybody. And, uh, a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting tweets out there. You want to go through anything? Comments, Twitter, Facebook? Should I check? Maybe I'll check what yeah, people you have check written. Yeah, you check also. I'll see what people have written on mine. I tried to put on my own Facebook page some of the, um, quotes from the prime minister, some of the things he was saying. Well, Judge Pirro, Judge Janine Pirro, she hosts uh, the Fox News show Justice with Judge Janine. I think she's pro-Israel. Well, she tweeted out, I love Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah. So that's... uh, Because she sees a leader who's going to get up and tell like it is. Exactly. Benjamin Netanyahu is a real leader. End of story. Um, I have here Bibi. uh, Every time I quote it, obviously, I say it. Bibi, even if Israel has to stand, stand alone, Israel will stand. Oh my gosh, 31 likes for that one? That's I also, good, yeah, I but like I, that. I did the end of the, tw- end of that quote. That BB, they, for the first time in a hundred generations, we the Jewish people can defend ourselves. Wow, that got a lot of comments. There's a lot going on here. That got a lot of comments. Wow. A lot of Sahel references. Oh, don't worry though. National Pancake Day is now tweeting, is now uh, trending again. What a country. I can only urge the leaders of the world not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Here it goes. I write, I write, here it comes, the part of the speech I wish all persecuted Jews in Israel could hear. All persecuted Jews in history could hear. Wow, got a lot of likes. Listener Oren says those, says those days are over. Yeah, well, the Shana Robert... says those days are over. CNN tweeted out the Robert Frost quote, the difficult path is the one less traveled. Yeah. 510 retweets. And is that the real quote? No. It's not, right? It's it's a It's supposed to be the road less traveled? It's a it's a paraphrased. Is it supposed to be the road less traveled? One second. What's now the Now you're making quote? me now, now What what did he what did he say according to Twitter? No, that was what he that was what he was paraphrasing Frost. It wasn't a direct quote of Frost. Didn't he say as Robert Frost said? Yes, but it the the path uh Danny Yeah, thank you. Check it out. No, I want Frost, and then I want BBs, and then I want lunch. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> and if it is National s- Pancake Day. We're not going for pancakes. What? No. We're not going for pancakes. I'd like to. Um, are we, we should be winding down here, though. I am a, uh, I'm a conformist. If it's National Pancake Day, I go with the trend, I go with the crowd, I go with the flow. Wasn't it refreshing to hear someone describe Iran as it is, as opposed to someone incapable of saying the word terrorist? Or radical Islam, for that or matter. radical Islam. All right. Danny, you have an answer for us, or are we wrapping up? All right. Thank you, everybody. Stay tuned. We will post that on Facebook. Speak to you next time BB addresses Congress. Yeah. <laughs> next perm? <laughs> Whenever that'll be. Uh, you've been listening to the Nahum Siegel Network, a special Tuesday preemption of the live lunch. Uh, so we can bring you the speech by Prime Minister Netanyahu. My thanks to Mayor Weingarten and to Michael Fragan. Their commentary is always welcome and fantastic. My thanks to Miriam L. Wallach. My thanks to Danny Goldberg. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. More coming up if you keep it at the stream. We recommend you keep it at uh, NahumSiegel.com and JMNAM.org at all times. And during this Purim week, we'll have a little bit of an alternate to our regular programming. Thursday, of course, will be a little different than you'd imagine. Uh, we will not have original programming throughout the day. 
on Thursday, uh, once Mayor Weingarten concludes JM and the AM live on Thursday morning. Uh, but we do recommend you stay with the stream for great Purim music and wonderful selections and fantastic programming all through the week. And don't forget, Friday, our weekly update, Malcolm Holmline will join us 7.40 in the morning on Shushan Purim to discuss the speech, and I'm sure much else. Make sure to be tuned in. I thank you for listening to the Nahum Single Network.